and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 360, The Germans Have Returned. As covered last time, RAF pilot Tom Neal would be heading home in December of 1941, and his feelings on that covered the spectrum. He was relieved, happy, joyful even, but he would miss his friends and knew they would be up against it as rumors were going around that the Germans were returning to Sicily. Still, his new post as tactics officer for Number 81 Group would allow him to contribute to the war effort, but it was time for other men to learn what he had learned, that is, if they survived the deadly lessons of air combat. During December, Tom, as was his wont, would sit around, drink, and talk to his friends, not that they all agreed on everything. Tom's contention was that, as the British Empire had survived, hell won the Battle of Britain, and the Americans were now in the war, victory was assured. It would just be messy and take some time. But some of the others retorted with, well, now that the Japanese are going after British possessions in Asia, the British Empire had to fight all over the world, which would stretch their resources. And in that stretching was opportunity for the Axis. We'll see, was Tom's reply, but for now, until he sailed home, he was off operations. No, it was up to others to protect Malta, whether the Germans, in their 109s, came back or not. The loss of the carrier Ark Royal was not the only bad news for Malta. At that exact moment, the Royal Navy had two other carriers in dry dock under repairs, and a third, after running aground, would also need some attention. And with no carriers for reconnaissance or to project power, no convoy could be risked by sending it to the island. The only convoy that got through in December was the Breckenshire, containing oil, but that had come from the relatively nearby Alexandria. In other words, lean times were coming for everyone on Malta, military personnel and civilian. The latter would have to suffer through but the former needed what they needed, especially if the Germans were truly returning to the area. And as harder times were coming to Malta, the British focused on boosting the morale of the Maltese. After all, their contributions, in hundreds of ways, was vital for the defense to continue. As such, King George VI, Churchill, and other VIPs continued to send stirring messages to the island. Back in April, when Lord Louis Mountbatten visited Malta, he came up with the idea of the king awarding the George Cross to the Maltese people as a whole, and King George liked the idea, but felt he should hold off. After all, he could only do it once, and it would be better if it came after some major event, should that take place. As for domestic harmony on the island, well, as much as was possible during a war, We've already seen where the British and Maltese authorities had detained 62 men and 12 women who were known to be pro-Italian. One of those men was a former chief justice and another a priest, but as they held sway over the populace, they could not be allowed to roam free. Eventually, some 40 people would be transferred off Malta and sent to Uganda. Considering the bombing campaign that was coming, they were the lucky ones. Also, as previously covered, Malta was a fortress of the Catholic faith, 
and at this time a new Archbishop of Malta, was needed. Even in this, former Governor Dobby and London were involved, as it meant much to the Maltese. In time, a Father Zarb was chosen, as he would not be opposed by the majority of the people, and, like other priests who were being considered, Zarb would not stand in the way of the planned post-war educational reforms, if there was a post-war, where the Maltese were free to do as they pleased. And thanks to William Dobby, though officially no longer governor, he continued to push to increase the pay of the locals, or at least give them bonuses on a regular basis, as the war made the cost of living on Malta more expensive. As for some good news for the war effort on Malta, just before the Germans reappeared over the Mediterranean skies, much of the shelter construction programs had been completed. Now they could focus on increasing the number of underground workshops in the dockyards. These would include underground supply depots, flour mills, and hangars. But by the time this got started, the Axis had renewed and redoubled their air attacks. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Field Marshal Kesselring wasted no time when his planes, subs, and torpedo boats arrived in the Mediterranean. And feeling supported once again, the Italians stepped up their game in a daring raid on December 19th. That one supply ship, the Breckenshire, which had reached Malta in December to deliver oil, was on its way back to Alexandria. As she was near the entrance of the Alexandria Harbor, She was not alone, but did not know this. On December 18th, an Italian sub, Screer, arrived about one mile west of the entrance. This was at 6.40 p.m. At 8.47 p.m., the sub released three SLCs, or slow-moving torpedoes, also known as maiales, the Italian word for pigs. These pigs had a top speed of two knots and a range of 15 miles, but that would be enough for tonight's plan. Each pig was the shape and size of a small torpedo, but had seats for two commandos, or frogmen, and these men were surprised to find as they approached the harbor that the anti-submarine boom was open before them. In fact, the escorts of the Breckenshire were returning as well and about to enter the harbor. Wisely, the three pigs followed the British ships inside. Now inside, the three Mayales went for their respective targets, the battleships Queen Elizabeth and Valiant, and a fleet oiler. Mayales 221 went for the Valiant, the other two for the other British vessels. By now, it was December 19th, 2.30 a.m. The men astride 221 put a warhead underneath the Valiant. As the two frogmen finished attaching their explosive, they were resting on the Valiant's mooring buoy when they were spotted. Captured, they refused to answer any questions, so were detained. At 6 a.m., one of them asked to speak to the ship's captain, 
Morgan. He told the captain of the explosive and that it would go off at any moment. He was returned to his cell. Just before this conversation, an explosive attached to the oiler Sangona detonated. Unfortunately for the British, the Sangona had four destroyers near her refueling. One of these was the Jervis, which had recently done good service for the war effort. All four destroyers were damaged. Six minutes after Captain Morgan had put his prisoner back into his compartment, the bomb under it went off. Four minutes later, a similar bomb went off under the battleship Queen Elizabeth. Both battleships settled on the harbor bottom. Fortunately, the water was shallow, so the ships just sat there almost as before. A small consolation prize was that all six Italians were captured, but what they had just accomplished changed the war in the Mediterranean. As Churchill would say when told of this catastrophe, six Italians, dressed in rather unusual diving suits and equipped with materials of laughingly little cost, had swung the military balance of power in the Mediterranean in favor of the Axis. But the valiant story was not over. Yes, she was damaged, but she did not completely sink under the water. So pictures from above made her look like she was fully operational. She was not, but this was kept from Rome and Berlin. So they would think that Admiral Cunningham still had the bulk of his fleet. The Valiant was patched up as best as the facilities at Alexandria could do, but being vulnerable, she would later have to go to South Africa for further repairs, only returning to the Mediterranean in 1943. But during those repairs, her radar system was updated, much to the detriment of the Axis forces in the Mediterranean. As for Queen Elizabeth, she sank as well, but again in shallow water. So she also, from above, looked operational. In time, she was raised, patched up enough to reach the Norfolk Naval Yard in Virginia. There, she stayed until June 1943. In early 1944, she would join the Eastern Fleet in the Indian Ocean to help push back the Japanese. Although the Italians and Germans did not fully realize the results of this attack at Alexandria, it was now time for them to focus on Malta. On December 22nd, JU-88 bombers harassed a few of the island's airfields, but they were just the bait. Around the bombers were some two dozen fighters, some of them being the feared and respected Messerschmitt 109s. 249 Squadron responded to this threat, but by the time the fighting was over, half of 249 Squadron was gone. Clearly, the German pilots had learned a thing or two when fighting the Russians. On Christmas Eve, the Ju-88 bombers were back, escorted this time by 20 fighters. Again, though not all, some of them were the 109s. The air attacks earlier in the week had been smaller. Clearly, the Germans were still settling in on Sicily and getting back into the groove. Their target this time was the Grand Harbor. But unlike before, the Maltese were not out in the open watching this attack with disdain. Fear had returned to the island. On Christmas Day, there would be no patrols from Malta, 
unless the Axis Plains paid them a visit. Still, Nat Gold, at how far in the southeast corner, and his mates were being served by their officers. This was a tradition. When word came that some of them may have to go out that very night, there was only one thing to do. If they got drunk, they could not be expected to fly. So, they got on with the drinking. In the center of the island at Takali, Tommy Thompson and his comrades of the MNFU, or Malta Night Fighter Unit, were taking it easy when suddenly a single Italian plane was heard and then spotted. She was flying just over the ground and dropped one bag with streamers on it. An armaments officer was sent out to check for explosives. None were detected, and they all realized that if there had been a bomb, their landing strip would need serious repairs. When the bag was opened, a Christmas card was inside. It was a hand-drawn card of an Italian pilot and his plane. The inscription read, Happy Christmas to the gentlemen of the Royal Air Force at Tacali, from the gentlemen of the Regia Aeronautica, Sicily. It was a very nice touch and showed that some of the Italians would rather be living their best lives than fighting and dying. But the people do not get to make those decisions. Either way, after that note... It was back to the war, back to suffering, and back to dying. What the RAF pilots would find out soon enough was that they were not fighting the same type of men they had before Operation Barbarossa. Oh, they were fighting the same men, but those eyes had seen the destruction of hundreds of thousands of Russian troops and civilians, not to mention some of their own comrades as the less well-equipped, though stubborn Russians, continued to resist. No, the German pilots had much of their mercy stripped away on the Eastern Front. And Kesselring would use these men, now filled with hate and cruelty, to good effect. First was to step up the number of attacks. This would lessen the amount of time the defenders had to make good repairs or get their planes operational again. Kesselring put it best in his memoir. Malta had assumed decisive importance as a strategic key point, and my primary objective at the beginning was to safeguard our supply lines by smoking out that hornet's nest. To be sure, he needed a few more days to get his men and equipment into place on Sicily, but by the new year, it would be done. And unbeknownst to Kesselring, he was off to a ringing start. Between the Italian raid on Alexandria, the sinking of the carrier Ark Royal with three more carriers in dry dock, and the increasing air raids over Malta that saw the reduction in RAF planes and pilots, not to mention their airfields that needed constant repair, he was well on his way. As for Admiral Cunningham, he had to honestly report to London that he, at present, because of that Italian raid, could not contain the Axis ships going from Italy to North Africa. The Allied Desert Forces were about to be in for a hard time, as was Malta, as was the Mediterranean Fleet, as was Force H at Gibraltar. The war was swinging back to the Axis favor. On Boxing Day, December 26th, so named because, well, there are several theories, 
But one is that during the 1830s in Britain, that was the first date after Christmas where the Postal Service would resume, including boxes in their deliveries, the Germans were back and in force. Luca Airfield, about three miles to the northwest of Halfar, again, that's in the southeast corner, was bombed. Meanwhile, German reconnaissance planes, their version of Warby, took pictures of much of the island to get a sense of the dispersal of Allied defenses. And as their reconnaissance planes were protected by 45 fighters, they had no trouble completing their mission. As these increased bombings had been going on for about a week now, Hugh Pugh put together his estimate of what Kesselring was up to. Step one was to reduce Malta's air defensive capabilities. With that done, more German bombers could attack the island with impunity. This was being realized by the three main airfields, Halfar, Luca, and Takali, getting hammered each and every day. But more than that, some of the bombs that rained down were anti-personnel bombs, augmented with machine gun fire, to take out as many support crew as possible, further reducing the chance of damaged fighters being repaired. Next, Grand Harbor was to receive attention, again, each and every day. But this was not to hit the civilians to cause panic. No, Kesselring was way beyond that point now. All the facilities there, including any ships in harbor at the time, and again harbor personnel, were to be eliminated. Malta, without the Grand Harbor, would not be the bulwark against Axis convoys it had once been. Also, and even if it was a single plane, each and every night, a bomber would come and harass some part of the island. No sense in letting the defenders have a decent night's sleep. With all this said and done, then, invading the island could be considered. For example, just past midnight, now January 1st, 1942, a single German bomber flew towards Malta. The moonlight was bright. The pilots had no trouble for making for Takali in the center of the island. As he was unchallenged, the bomber flew back and forth, up and down Takali's airfield, at least a dozen times, strafing the hurricanes parked on the perimeter. The air arm of the island's defenses had just been downgraded again. This single bomber represented the 1,175th air raid since Italy came into the war 18 months ago. And there would be 262 air raids against Malta in January alone. This was pure Kesselring. Though called Smiling Albert, he was efficient. Read Ruthless Leader. This is what it took to win. Thus, it would be done. Back during the Battle of Britain, he had helped in taking on the British, but at the time, he was limited in his decision-making process by Goering, who, just as the RAF was on its knees as their radar towers and airfields were hit daily, switched over to bombing civilians, which allowed the RAF to get up off their knees and deliver a death blow to Goering's goal of dominating the skies over the southern half of the island. But here, now, Kesselring was in charge, and he only answered to Hitler. So freed, 
he would accomplish his task. With the return of the Measure Schmidt 109s, the hurricanes on Malta were bested in speed and altitude, simply put. This forced Air Marshal Sir Hugh Pugh Lloyd to send a telegram to C&C Middle East Field Marshal Claude de Auch Auchinleck that said, The first problem here is fighter defense and that he did not have the tools for the job. This desperate assessment matched Admiral Cunningham's after he lost the battleships Queen Elizabeth and Valiant. Further, Hugh Pugh said, only Spitfires had the ability to climb fast enough and high enough to take on the 109s. Moreover, the Ju-88 bombers were so well armored, only the P-40 Kitty Hawk fighters, otherwise known as Curtis P-40 Warhawk fighters, an American-made all-metal fighter and ground attack aircraft called Kitty Hawks by the British and Soviets, which had cannon, had any chance of taking them out. Hence, Hugh Pugh finished with, what Malta needs, and needs right now, is three squadrons of Spitfires, two squadrons of Kitty Hawks, and a half-squadron of Hurricane Twos for night defense. The Air Ministry replied with, we will send you Spitfires, but only about 14 of them, and do whatever you have to to conserve these aircraft as much as possible, and restrict their use to essential high-flying operations over Malta only. One may ask if the Air Ministry understood that there was a war on, and in Europe, besides the Eastern Front, this was the vital post that could determine the future of Egypt, the Suez Canal, and all of the Middle East. The Spitfires would take about a month to reach Malta, and in that time, Kesselring made the Maltese and their defenders, not to mention all connected operations, suffer. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.